Welcome to Bible Greek B-Pod's Intermediate Greek Program. This is Lesson 14. In this lesson, you will learn voice, and then we will look at a very controversial section of Scripture, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. But first, let's look at voice. The relationship of the subject to the action is communicated in the verb by voice. The Greek voice consists of the active, middle, and passive. And it communicates the following. The active voice means the subject is doing the action. The passive voice means the subject receives the action. And the middle voice means the subject is both doing and receiving the action. Now, with respect to voice, in the Greek there are irregularities. And these irregularities uh, center on the concept of a deponent verb. A deponent verb is usually listed in your lexicons as your middle or passive deponent verb. And what that means is there is no active form for that verb, but it has an active meaning in most cases. An example of a deponent middle is the popular erechomai, to come or go. Likewise, for the passive deponent verb, aginethane, from ginomai, to become. Though most deponent verbs are true deponents, in that they always carry an active sense, there are some that look deponent but are not. To identify whether a verb is deponent or not, first determine if its form is labeled as such in the lexicons. In other words, it's going to have a middle or a passive form, and it will not have an active form anywhere found. Then the context will determine whether you should translate it as active, passive, or middle. Let's look at the uses of the active voice. First, there is a simple active. The simple active means the subject directly performs or experiences the action of the verb. It's the most common usage of the active voice. An example is Titus chapter 3, verse 5. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, by according to his mercy... He saved us. There's your deponent. Uh, there is your active voice. He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. The subject, he, he saved us. Jesus Christ is the he there, the subject. He performs the action of saving us. Another example is Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, he died for us. There is your active voice. He died for us. The subject Christ performs the action on our behalf. Next, we have the causative active. The causative active means the subject is indirectly involved in the action. The subject is indirectly involved in the action, but is the ultimate source or cause of it. For example, John 19.1. So then, Pilate took Jesus and he scourged him. Here the meaning is that he, Pilate, caused Jesus to be scourged, but he did not perform the act himself. Another one is uh, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God caused to grow. See that the causative active sense is there, an indirect uh, involvement. Next we have the reflective active. Sometimes the author uses the active voice with a reflective pronoun conveying an idea similar to the middle voice but this is referred to as the reflective active. In this case, the subject acts upon itself, much like the direct middle. 1 Corinthians 11.28 But let a man examine himself, 
And so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. The idea there is uh, let a man examine himself. But it's really an active, uh, an active voice. But the context uh, it screams out that it must be a reflective active. It must be translated like uh, a middle, a middle voice. So let's move now to the middle voice. Doctors Dana and Manti give us this important note about the middle voice. Here we approach one of the most distinctive and particular phenomena of the Greek language. It is impossible to describe it adequately or accurately in terms of English idiom, for English knows no appropriate parallel. It is imperative that the student abandon, as far as possible, the English point of view and comprehend that of the Greek. We can never hope to express exactly the Greek middle voice by an English translation, but must seek to accentuate ourselves to its mental atmosphere and feel its force, though we cannot express it precisely. The uniqueness of this uh, Greek middle is further clarified by Dr. Wallace, as he says. For Koine Greek, the term middle has become a misnomer because it inherently describes that voice that stands halfway between the active and the passive. Only the direct middle truly does this. Since the direct middle is phasing out in Hellenistic Greek, the term is hardly descriptive of the voice as a whole. See what I mean? The language is changing in the Hellenistic period. So Dr. Wallace wants to uh, let you know that things are changing. So sometimes there's a shift, uh, he says, uh, between the transitive and the intransitive between the causative and the non-causative, or some other similar alteration. Though not always predictable, such changes in meaning from active to middle usually make good sense and are true to the genius of the voices. So Dr. Wallace, uh, in general, says, be cautious. And finally, Dr. Young uh, puts the middle in perspective as he writes, the basic notion is that the subject intimately participates in the results of the action. It is the voice of personal involvement. Even though deponent verbs are translated with an active sense, they often convey the idea of interest or involvement. So, first off in the middle, we have the indirect middle. The indirect middle means the subject acts for, by, or in its own interest. The stress is placed upon the agent that produces the action rather than participating in its results. Let me say that again. The stress is placed upon the agent that produces the action rather than participating in its result. Of course, the indirect middle is the most common usage of the middle in the New Testament. An example is Ephesians 1, 4. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. You see that uh, the middle there. Just as he chose us, that is for himself, is what's implied there before the foundation of the world. What a, what a great uh, theological statement that is. He chose us for himself, is what is implied there. We have the direct middle. The direct middle means the subject directly performs the action on itself. This is often referred to as reflexive middle. But it is the least used in the New Testament. An example is Matthew 27, 5. And he cast down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went and hanged himself. See, he hanged himself as that direct middle. He performed the action on himself. The redundant middle is the next middle. And the redundant middle is 
formed by using a reflexive pronoun as the direct object of the middle verb. You see, it's kind of redundant, isn't it? Using a pronoun with a middle verb. An example is Romans 6.11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin. See, there's that middle with the uh, pronoun. Reckon yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Next, we move to the permissive middle. The permissive middle means the subject allows the action to be done for itself. See, there's permission there. It allows the action to be done for itself. An example is Acts 22.16. And now, why are you waiting? Arise, be baptized. There's that middle. Be baptized, allowing the uh, action to uh, be done for itself. Arise, be baptized, and wash away your sins. There's that other middle there. Wash away. Be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The next middle we encounter is the reciprocal middle. The reciprocal middle means one member or some subgroup of the subject interacts with the other members of a plural subject. That's the reciprocal middle. It involves a plural subject. And it means there is an interchange among these subjects. An example is John 9.22. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed with one another. There's that middle. Agreed with one another. There's a plural subject. And there's agreement amongst themselves. They agreed with one another that if anyone confessed he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Next, we have the deponent middle, which we already talked about the deponent middle. And some verbs have no active form. They are in the middle, but have an active meaning. So context is going to, uh, to determine that. It's a verb that is uh, obsolete and it's a lot of times used as an idiom, and so it, it has no active form. An example is John 10:25. Jesus answered, there's the, uh, the middle voice, Jesus answered them. The context tells you how to translate that. Jesus answered him in the simple, it's just translated as a simple active form. I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. Next, we're going to look at the passive voice. The simple passive is the most common usage of the passive. With the simple passive, the subject receives the action. No information concerning the uh, cognition, the volition, or cause is given concerning the subject it just simply states the subject receives the action. For example, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified, there, there is the passive there, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That simple passive. The subject receives the action. Next, with the passive, we have the passive with direct agent. In this case, the passive can be used with the preposition, hupo, uh, in the ablative to express the original agent which produces the action of the passive. The agent may be emphasized by use of the prepositional phrase. For example, Matthew 1.22 but all this took place in order that, here it is, what was spoken by, there's that passive with direct agent, what was spoken by the Lord, and here it is, might be fulfilled. There's two passives there. And it uh, has the hupo, was spoken by, uh, you get that ablative sense, the Lord, that source or origin the original agent producing the action. Next, we have the passive with intermediate agent. The passive can be used with the preposition dia with the genitive to express the medium 
through which the cause is affected by the action of the passive. Boy, that's a long phrase, isn't it? Let's look at the example. Matthew 1, 22. But all this was done so that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, and then he goes into the saying. So see, you see that intermediate agent. The, uh, the prophets are the intermediate agent of this passive. Next, we have the passive with impersonal agent. The passive can be used with the preposition, with the instrumental case, to express the agent through which the action of the passive is performed. And it's, it, it is impersonal. An example is uh, Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So there's that, that big, huge, uh, long expression there in the passive, impersonal agent, and not of yourselves, the gift of God. So you see the, uh, the agent is expressed through the instrumental case of the preposition. Another important use of the passive is what Dr. Young calls the theological passive. He says uh, the theological passive is found in Scripture and in, 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 in used in Scripture in order to circ- circumvent the Jewish tradition of using the word God. The Jews avoided unnecessary use of the divine name to protect them from uh, from frivolously uttering the sacred name, thus violating the third commandment. This circumlocation occurs most often in the Gospels. So the passives of the Beatitudes is, uh, is what uh, Dr. Young uses as an, as an example of this theological passive. So, uh, some of that is uh, the use when they shall be comforted uh, means that God will comfort them. And that they uh, shall be satisfied means that God will satisfy them. And then uh, another word, they will be shown mercy means that God will be merciful to them. And then finally he gives an example, they will be called means God will call them. So this is what he calls the theological passive. But finally, we have the uh, passive with middle sense. The passive is sometimes better translated with the middle sense. For example, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. So humble yourselves. It's really a passive, but they translate it as a middle. Again, the context uh, will will tell you how to translate this. Next, let's move to our text for the day, 1 John chapter 3, verses 4 through 9. Keeping oneself pure. I hope you've gone to the website and you have gotten the detailed analysis for this study. So if you've done that, let's take a look at that. Get your detailed analysis out and we'll take a look at that. This section of scripture is a a controversial section of scripture simply because uh, people want to uh, make more of this than is meant. And it involves the perfection of the believer. Uh, Sanctification, the, the different ideas of sanctification, how one lives out their life uh, as a believer. And and so chapter 3 starts out like chapter 2 with the subject of knowledge and deeds. So when you compare chapter 2 verses 3 through 5 with chapter 3 verses 4 through 9, you find this exhortation to live up to the calling. Uh, it's written, What manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God? There is a concept that we should live a pure life because that's our calling, to live up to His standard, not our own. For John, true believers have known Him in the perfect tense, but they also continue to know how to function in the Christian walk relying upon Him abiding in him, the present tense is used, being sensitive to the word of God, through the spirit of God, 
through the work of the Spirit of conviction and teaching. This section is served to be one of the most controversial in history, as some have used it to prove that once a person is saved, they are perfect in some way, and that they cannot sin. Can you believe that? The result of this teaching has been devastating. For example, after the great Roman persecutions, there arose a great debate whether to let those Christians back into the church that chose to renounce Christ instead of being martyred. Some argued that those who renounce Christ cannot be a true believer, since that is a sin, and a true believer cannot sin. Let me just quote John, uh, his opening thesis as he wrote this letter. John chapter, First uh, John chapter 1, verses 5 through 10. This is the message what we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in, in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, that the message of this letter is that of fellowship and a walk. He's talking to believers. Yes, there are some unbelievers in this church that he is warning them about, but he's talking to believers. He continues, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. That's not talking about we have never had sin, but we say we have no sin currently. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, this is the the continuous walk is summed up here. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, he's given us an advocate. He's given us a method. When we sin, we can confess our sin, uh, repent, turn away from that sin, get right with God, and he makes that provision for us. So he continues, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. That's very strong. Let me give you a quote by Dana and Manti. No element of the Greek language is of more importance to the student of the New Testament than the matter of tense. A variation in meaning exhibited by the use of a particular tense will often dissolve what appears to be an embarrassing difficulty or reveal a gleam of truth which will thrill the heart with delight and inspiration. The development of tense has reached its highest in Greek and presents its greatest wealth of meaning. Among all known ancient languages, none distinguishes the manifold temporal and modal relations of the verb so accurately as the Greek. Great little quote from Dana and Manti. And that's what this section deals with. Tense. Pay attention to the tense and you won't mess up this section. Let's take a look at uh, chapter 3, verse 4. In the detailed analysis, everyone who does sin, indeed the transgression is made, and the sin is the transgression. Very simple sentence there. John has to define the relationship of sin to the law for this church infected by Greek culture and philosophy. Isn't that true in our age today? The world creeps into the church. We have to clarify it. If Jesus died for all my sins, then why do I care whether or not I sin? That's the problem with the Greek culture. Everyone who actively commits sin is also transgressing the law. That's what John says. Someone might say, I thought the law was done away with. And they might even cite Romans 10.4. If so, how can John make this statement? Jesus came to fulfill the law, to make the law complete. The Mosaic law is divided up into three parts. There's the ceremonial part, the judicial, and the moral. There have always been some universal laws placed upon man even as it existed before Moses. With the Old Covenant, 
when we say the Old Covenant, generally we speak of the Mosaic Law, certain laws were made specific for the nation Israel to point out sin. Now we have the law of God that is to be placed in the heart of man by the new covenant. Do you think the law still exists? Uh, God is the God of laws. The new covenant concerned the law of Christ, or the law of love is how the Bible speaks of it. And it is what is in view here. And within the commands of God to love your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, all those commands have summarized in that one, and the transgression of this law is viewed as lawlessness. John means to develop the contrast between what Paul calls the law of sin and death and the law of the spirit of life. Paul does that in Romans chapter 8. This is that battle in the believer between the flesh and the new man. In this case, pos, the adjective, all or every man, in this case translated everyone, not just everyone in a particular group, but everyone. Notice the accusative adjective is placed at the head of the verse. This might better be translated with the participle first, to make or do. Uh, So it could be translated something like this. He that continues to do sin also does the transgression. Everyone that is, there are no exceptions. Dr. Linsky translates, everyone doing the sin is already doing the lawlessness. In this phrase, both sin and transgression are the subjects linked by a coordinating conjunction, and the sense of both the participle and the verb is durative. In other words, continuous. The word for sin is tightly connected to the adjective everyone, but the emphasis is placed upon the individual performing the harmatia, the sin. As this participle takes the adjective, this person is known as a sinner. What a statement that is. Here's a a person in the church who's known as a sinner. The definite articles serve to point out, notice there are two, they serve to point out The sin in question, a real sin actually being committed. The conjunction is translated indeed, since a link between the individual to the sin is indeed a definite transgression. And it places unity and equality with the two words sin and transgression, placing them in a legal language, a crime. The transgression is the word anoma. And it has the definite article, and sometimes translated inequity or unrighteousness, uh, without law, no law, is how it's uh, how you could literally translate that. Remember, God is a God of law. Whether the law governs the natural laws of physics, chemistry, biology, mathematics, those kinds of things, but there is the law of language. We don't violate the law of language, or we're just incomprehensible. But there's a law of government, and then he talks about his law. His commands are his law. And a transgression of the law has the same consequences. Transgressing God's law is what the Bible is about and has its consequences also. In the Old Testament, transgressing the law, that is the law of God for the nation Israel, resulted in a just restitution. Transgressing a law against others in the community required restitution a reconciliation between the two parties with some form of financial recompense. Transgressing a law against God, likewise, required restitution in the form of an animal sacrifice or some other act, but it always required a sincere acknowledgement, that is confession, calling it like God calls it, of the specific sin and resulting in repentance, turning away from that sin, and never doing it again. That is to say, you turn away completely from that sin. It cuts to the heart, you might say. For the dispensation of the New Testament, the law still exists. What? Did I really say that? The law still exists? Huh. But it is not like the Old Testament. The New Testament law is summed up in the commands of Christ. 
Love thy God with all your heart and love thy neighbor with as yourself. This is a law that is governed by the new covenant. What happens when this law is transgressed? The person actively doing or paeo the sin, in this case, hamatia, with a de- definite article, also is said to be transgressing the law. Estin ha anama. What does this mean? Does it mean that we should be a law keeper? Absolutely. The law of Christ, that is the requirement in the dispensation of the church. Does keeping the law save us? No, never did. The law is a way of life. So the law of Christ speaks of agape love, a giving love. Galatians 6 uh, chapter 6, verses 1-2 through two expresses it this way. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ about? Christ summed it up. What a great summation that is. That God is first in your life. And in this particular book of 1 John, he speaks of fellowship. Fellowship with God, then fellowship with brothers. The first century saint was being confused because of the error taught in the church by the Gnostics, who viewed sin in a perverted way, and on the other extreme, the Judaizer, who wanted to live under the law. One of the greatest truths of the Bible is the truth that the law is spiritual. That means that although the law has a judgment aspect, it is intended to have a love aspect as well. The law involves a cold, hard fact. But provision is made for those who aren't able to perform in some way the letter of the law. That is what is called the theology of the goodness of God. Mercy abounds in the law. This is what stumbled the Jewish leadership when Jesus performed his miracles on the Sabbath. Did Jesus break the law? I thought he held the law perfectly. He did uphold the law and obeyed the law perfectly. It is just that he understood the law completely. That is, he understood the provisions relating to the grace of God. For example, when he healed the lame man at the pool or that blind man, the Jewish leadership accused him of breaking the law because he did not keep the Sabbath. He performed that miracle on the Sabbath. It is clear that Jesus broke their traditions, but not the law. Let's move on to verse 5. And you have known that he was made manifest so that he took away our sins. This is the second time John has stated that Jesus came in the flesh for the purpose of taking away our sins. Actually, he will say it a total of three times in this book. And how does he do that? By being faithful to the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah 53, to die on the cross performing a vicarious sacrificial work. John continues the thought with his conjunction chi also and even by saying that the sinner who is now saved has completely seen the picture. Wow, that's what this is about. And you have known or you have seen that he was made manifest. Remember Ido, the perfect active indicative, means primarily to see. It's often translated to know. And in this case, the Holy Spirit has performed the illumination. And the individual has seen clearly the doctrine of Christ's death as a substitute for the sinner. That's what this means. And they know this completely as the perfect tense points out. Because Christ came in the flesh, the picture has been completely made. His manifestation in the flesh made the legal act complete. The conjunction hati is common for introducing an objective clause after verbs of knowing, seeing, and saying. So is translated that and is combined with the far demonstrative 
ekonos, that which is usually just translated that he was manifested. The wonderful word phanero, to make manifest or visible or known, conveys the manner in which God came in the flesh. We call this the incarnation. But the Greek is simply the phanero, the manifestation of God, as the heiress brings out the idea of an appearing in history as a single event. This manifestation cannot be confused with anything other than his birth, since the passive says he was a passive participant. He was created in the womb by the Holy Spirit, was brought about in a normal human birth, and came into the world like a normal man, so as to represent mankind in his life and death. But because of his miraculous conception, that is, his conception by the Holy Spirit, he could be called perfect by God, since only God is perfect. What an incredible thing this God-man is. He is truly the only begotten of God, the only one who ever was or ever will be like this. The purpose of this manifestation is given by the Hineclause, and it points out that our sins are carried away by the passing of his visible appearance. Wow! One of the great truths of Scripture is found in this word, arrow. It's actually an aorist active subjunctive, third person singular, to raise up, to take upon oneself, or uh, to bear away what has been raised. He took our sins. Notice it's a plural there, hamatia. And a definite article is placed on the sins. The definite article pointing out the definiteness of the sins that are ours. This is a purpose clause. So the era subjunctive expresses the idea of the bearing of our sins is contingent upon certain existing and known conditions. So the action is objectively possible, so the translation, he might take away our sins. It is as though the Greek gives us the doctrine of expitiation. The full meaning of the scapegoat is in this word, arrow. Jesus Christ bore our sins on the cross and took them away. They no longer are visible to God since he carried them away. The possibility of forgiveness of sin is everywhere present in the doctrine of salvation. The objective fact of Jesus Christ's appearing in the flesh, dying on the cross, and being resurrected secure the existing and known condition. But the individual's sinful condition is always included in the existing and known condition. John draws a distinction between propitiation, that is placating the wrath of God, satisfying the wrath of God, and expitiation, that is removal of sin, guilt, and wrath. John distinguishes the two, propitiation and expitiation. Notice in the Gospel of John, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, singular, collective, of the world. But here he points out sins, plural, in order to clarify the point of the individual's many sins, making a theological distinction in Jesus' death as covering both inherited sins, that's the imputed sin, and the individual's sins. One cannot blame Adam for his or her sin and cannot say Jesus Christ paid the price for Adam's sin only, but not my sin. Just as Adam's sin is imputed or reckoned, that's the Greek word logizomai, to all mankind, Adam's sin is imputed to all mankind, so Christ's righteousness is logizomai, imputed to mankind. This speaks of the three great doctrines of imputation. That is, first, is Adam's sin is imputed to mankind, Romans chapter 5. Next, man's sin is imputed to Christ, it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 2. And then Christ's righteousness is imputed to believers at 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and Isaiah 53. Christ's righteousness imputed to believers. Let's move on to the second phrase. He has no sin. 
and in and sin is not in him. Finally, the apostle concludes this statement by adding the conjunction chi, or it's maybe indeed if you want, a harmatia, a sin, singular, not one, is not in that preposition there, positionally in him. Notice there's no definite article. So the meaning is any sin or not a single sin is in him. This speaks of the doctrine of the God-man nature of Jesus Christ. He was sinless in every way and satisfied the Old Testament prophecy that he knew no sin on a human level. That's at Isaiah 53. You can find that many times in the New Testament. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Hebrews chapter 4, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, 1 Peter chapter 2. He knew no sin. And further speaks of the theological or the legal connection of the one that is the substitute being offered up to God as being spotless. That's echoed in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. Just as verse 3 states, just as he is pure, so the statement, in him there is no sin. The phrase places sin at the head of, in order to emphasize the sinless nature of Christ. That's what the Greek does. His purity and sinless nature should move us to be like him and put off our sins. Dr. Linsky writes this, As Christ is pure and sin is not in him, they must ever be purifying themselves, and when they find themselves sinning, must flee to their advocate with his expitiation for our sins. Notice the use of the tenses, the continuous purifying themselves, uh, sinning, uh, those are all continuous, the present tense. Tense is important in this, in this section of Scripture. Very important. John highlights the distinction between positional salvation and experiential salvation, or uh, in theology what is called sanctification. Our position is in Christ. We stand legally acquitted before God because of what Christ did on the cross. That's a past tense. Our sins are forgiven. And with that statement, there is a past tense, a present tense, and a future tense. So our past, our present, and our future sins are all covered by Christ on the cross. But our experience, our daily walk in this fallen world is another story. We are sinners who are implored not to sin. Verse 6 Abiding in him moves one not to sin. Or you could say as a subtopic, you are known by your associates. Are you known as one who abides in Christ? Verse 6, the first phrase, Everyone that abides in him does not sin. The teaching of abiding in Christ reaches its high point and value in this little phrase. A believer is not known as a sinner. That's the punchline. If a person believes in Christ as Savior, then he or she is saved and declared righteous by God, past tense, all their sins are covered by Christ's death on the cross, not just some sin, but all, for he was sacrificed once for all. You don't have to keep bringing it up. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10 says that. Sacrificed once for all. This person is seen by God in the throne room as sinless because Christ removed that sin and his righteousness is imputed to the believer. That's what that means on a theological basis. But personal sin is still a problem in the believer's life. The picture is drawn in scripture that the devil, the accuser, the slanderer is ever present accusing and exposing the believer's sin in the throne room. But our advocate, Jesus Christ, continues in our defense, testifying, I paid the price for that sin also. If a person is abiding in Christ, then he or she will put off the sin that has a hold on them. That's the principle. Abiding in Christ in his word serves as a preventer of the Christian 
from falling into the temptations and the deceptions of the devil. The word abiding means an active relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. The opening adjective, pos, every man, everyone, identifies the subject of the literary couplet of this verse. Notice the couplet. Anyone who abides in him, and then the second couplet, anyone who continues in sin. Notice that. Anyone who abides in him, anyone who continues in sin. The first part of the couplet defines the state of the person that is trusting in God and serves as a statement of fact or one who overcomes sin and further the motivation to mature in Christ. Not like the Gnostic who believed that some of them achieved maturity and protect and perfection in this life. And in fact said they reached such an advanced stage of spiritual experience that they were beyond good and evil. Can you believe that? That is Greek philosophy. Raw Greek philosophy. There is some good in man. Man is not totally depraved. Man is has some good in him and by the way I can reach spiritual perfection I am beyond good and evil is what they say they maintained that they had no sin not in the sense that they had attained moral perfection but in the sense that what might be sin for people at a less mature stage of inner development you see that superiority complex that it was no longer sin for the completely spiritual man. Greek philosophy, the culture coming into the church, that's what John is dealing with. To say one is in him means one is in Christ, or has a particular belief that has its message based on the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's the gospel that's preached today. This person is a professing Christian, and in fact... This professing Christian is one who abides in Christ. The participle meno, a present active participle. Nominative masculine singular. Notice it has the definite article. To remain or abide or dwell is part verb, part noun, thus making this individual a person who is known as a person who currently stands before God relying upon him to cleanse him and has the sense he who continues to abide or remain in Christ. The tenses of this verse scream out the distinction between two types of people. The true Christian practices what he preaches, so the present tense is used, whereas the false Christian's actions have their foundation in not knowing. And in fact, the knowledge has never been there. It is the perfect tense. Where the true Christian acknowledges the saving work of Christ on the cross, and hence is seen as abiding in Christ, continuing to abide in Christ, that is not calling him a liar and enjoying the freedom of not having his own sin condemn him, but rather he continues to not, Continue in sin. That's the negative particle, not, with harmatio, present active indicative, third person singular, to sin. Because he still holds and acknowledges the truth of his sinfulness. Do you get that? The present tense. He acknowledges the truthfulness of his sinfulness. Dr. F.F. F. Bruce says this, in saying that no one who abides in him sins, John is not asserting that it is impossible for a believer to commit an occasional act of sin. He has already pointed to the provision made for such an emergency by means of confession in verse 1-9. And Christ's activity to his people as an advocate in chapter 2 verse 1 and has warned his readers against unfounded claims to be sinless with in or without in chapter 1 verse 8 and 10 what he does assert is that a sinful life does not mark a child of God so that anyone who leads such a life is shown thereby not to be a child of God fellowship with the sinless one 
an indulgence in sin or a contradiction in terms. So Dr. Bruce says this is a manner of life, sin as a manner of life. I would have to agree with that. The second uh, phrase of verse 6, continuing in sin is not compatible with following him. That's the lesson here. It goes like this. Everyone who continues to sin has not seen him, neither has known him. Again, the subject is found in everyone, the pos, that adjective, everyone in the church that professes Christ. If this person continues in their sin, as the present tense of the participle harmartio communicates, um, this person is known as an active, open sinner. That's what that participle speaks of. Did you catch the difference in the participles? The true Christian is one who is, who is an abider. He continues to be an abider in him. That's the present. That's a true believer. Then there's this false Christian, a false believer, who is a sinner. He continues to be a sinner. Both are present participles, and they have very different characteristics. True believer continues as an abider in him, a false believer continues as a sinner. What a striking difference identified in the grammar of the two persons. The false Christian is called an unbeliever because he or she does not horeo, perfect active indicative, third person singular. He does not see with the eyes, see with the mind. It means he has never seen or known. The perfect tense is complete and you should you could say that this person has never seen or theologically never been illuminated by the Holy Spirit. This person does not see nor does he nor has he ever seen the big picture because he has never been born again. The eyes of his heart has never been opened. The personal pronoun atos him points to God the Father or God the Son. But because the Father has been revealed through the Son, they are in essence one. That is to say, the object of this sight and knowledge has to do with the Son. Have you seen him? Do you have the whole picture of who he is and what he has done in the flesh on the cross for mankind? If you can say yes, then you know him. But the false believer in the church, neither, that's the compound, ude, neither has seen him nor ginosko, a perfect active indicative, oh, has known, neither has seen him or completely not known him. That perfect tense stresses the point of the individual's complete lack of acceptance of who Christ is and the fact of what his death covered on the cross. 